Uh, we have for some time now been in chapter 8 of our confession, the London uh, Baptist Confession of Faith, commonly known as the 1677 or the 1689 Confession of Faith, just reading it paragraph by paragraph. And um, this morning I wanted to read to you paragraph 6 of our confession. And for those of you who are looking on, we have, we have it up on the screen, but there's also a copy of the confession in the, in the pew in front of you, or should be. It says this, The price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ until after his incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefit of it was imparted to the elect in every age since the beginning of the world, in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices that revealed him and pointed to him as the seed that would bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So praise be to God for that. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 8. The Gospel of Mark chapter 8. We began to look at chapter 8 last week, and this morning we're going to look and kind of think through, uh, we're going to read cha- uh, verses 27 to 33, but I'm, I'm really just going to uh, spend the, the bulk of my time this morning on this confession of Peter uh, that we see, just this, uh, by God's grace, by the, by the Spirit of God working in Peter's life as he's um, uh, with Christ in his first incarnation, just his, his ability to be able to confess Jesus as the Christ. But there's lots here for us to consider, and so I'm going to spend two weeks here. Uh, so I'll, I'll pick this text back up next week. So if you, you know, um, for, for those of you that, that notice how much I'm neglecting this morning, uh, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be back in it again next week, Lord willing. But al- allow me to read about this confession, <coughs> um, as Mark records it, uh, and if, if you would like, and this would be a good exercise each Lord's Day, to, when, when the other Gospels um, contain the, the same accounts, I'll, I'll try to remember to point them out to you, but we see the same account in Matthew 16 and in Luke 9, but, but John Mark, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he, he wrote these words, Says now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he spoke this word openly or plainly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he, speaking of Christ, he rebuked Peter saying, Get behind me, Satan. 
For you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this clear confession that Jesus is the Christ. And may this confession that we see in your word, inspired and preserved by your spirit, may that confession be our confession. So give us by faith confidence, surety. Strengthen us, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's talk about Peter for a moment. <clears throat> if, if we were to do a, a character study on Peter, j- just based on the Gospels, and kids, when you hear me say the word Gospels, what I mean are the books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But if we did a character study on Peter just based on the Gospels, we could come to a, a few conclusions about Peter. First... He, he was seemingly quick to speak, wasn't he? Right? In, in fact, he's the, he's the spokesperson for the rest of the apostles here in, in our text this morning. And, and in our text, we actually see this issue of, of being quick to, to speak. Right? And, and the Bible has something to say about those who, who are quick to speak. Right? My mind, and maybe many of your minds, it goes to James. Right? James chapter 1, verses 19 to 20. Where James says, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to what? To, to hear, right? Not to speak. Be swift to hear. Be slow to speak. Slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God, right? Quick, quickly speaking, it assumes understanding, doesn't it? Right? When we speak or when we're quick to speak, we're oftentimes assuming that we have the, the full picture. Right? And how many of us struggle with that very thing? Right? I think a defining characteristic of our society is being a people that are, are quick to speak. Right? Speaking beyond what we know, speaking beyond our knowledge, speaking before we have a, a greater understanding. And I think in many of our lives this is amplified because we carry around computers in our pockets, right? If Peter, pre-computer, if he was quick to speak and prone to think that he had all the answers, how much more are we? But Peter also had a temper. He had a temper. We get a glimpse of that when kids and later on he cuts a man's ear off. Right? A man's ear, part of the mob that came to arrest Jesus in secret. We see that in the Gospel of John chapter 18. But we also sense his frustration, right? If we're paying attention to the tone of the text this morning that we just read, we sense his frustration at, at Jesus's plain intention on what him being the Messiah meant. In fact, Peter's so distraught by it that he pulls Jesus aside to, to rebuke Jesus. <clears throat> We also know that, that Peter could be cowardly, right? He could be cowardly at times. He was duplicitous. He was contradictory in his thinking. And, and the scriptures, don't, they don't try to clean any of this up for us. In fact, that's one of the things that I love about 
the scriptures uh, that I, I believe testifies to them being divinely inspired. Right? We like to, typically, we like to put our best foot forward, right? We like to present ourselves well, like we have it all together. But we don't in scripture have these neat and, and tidy models, right? This sort of uh, uh, Instagram, Instagram filter, in the way that we see people in the scriptures, right? In fact, the gospel of Mark, as we've observed together, it was written by a man who deserted Paul and Barnabas, right? Abandoned them in the middle of a, a missionary journey. And it's no coincidence that, that, that he was mentored later by Peter, who more than likely helped him compose his gospel because of what we... we I don't think it was a coincidence based on what we know about Peter, right? Peter, he abandoned Jesus, right? He abandoned Jesus, literally denied knowing him and being with him in the hour of Jesus' trial and his, his flogging and his execution, his, his crucifixion. And if, if we were to survey the Bible, right, those that are considered heroes in the stories often did bad things sinful things. And as readers of these accounts, we're not, we're not shielded from that. And I'm thankful for that because it encourages me as a sinner, right? But if we read them honestly, and if we evaluate our lives, right, we, we see the rightness of the apostle Paul when he quotes Psalms 14 and 53 to the church in Rome and says, there's none righteous. No, not one. Right? We see King Solomon is right when he said in Ecclesiastes 7.20, for there's not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Right? No prophet, no priest, no king, no person is without sin. Right? We've all been thoroughly corrupted. We have inherited a, a sin nature from the first Adam. And as a result, the meditations of our heart Right? Our desires, in, inward desires, our actions, our habits are often, <coughs> are often sinful. Now, one of the phrases that comes to my mind as I've been kind of thinking through this passage of Scripture and studying this passage of Scripture is the phrase two steps forward and, and one step back. All right? Because we notice in our passage of Scripture this morning, the Apostle Peter, he speaks with clarity, right, at, Toward the beginning part, right? By, by God's grace, we see this, this spiritual understanding finally about Jesus, about who he is. Yet just a couple of verses later, Peter's rebuked by Jesus because after his confession, he then speaks too quickly and he speaks without understanding based on this faulty um, uh, view on what he believed the Messiah should be and what he believed the Messiah should do in order to acquire salvation for his people. So, so it really is two steps forward, one step back. And in many ways, we find ourselves in a story like this, don't we? In a story of confessing Christ one minute and walking and speaking as someone who is deceived in the next like the Apostle Peter, like the rest of the apostles, we have a lot of growing and, and maturing to do. Right? Our Christian walk 
this side of eternity is, is one of responding to the gospel of God, which is this, that, that Christ Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture, and that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures, right? First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 4, right? We respond to that gospel with repentance and with faith. And over the years, when we zoom out, we should observe, we should see this trajectory, if you will, of growth, right? It may go like this, ups and downs, but there should be this trajectory of growth if we're truly converted by the gospel of God, right? There will be growth if we're truly converted by the gospel of God. It might seem and, and feel at times like there isn't growth. It may be very slow growth, two steps forward, one step back, but our lives should be characterized by one of growing in Christ-likeness. So we, we have Peter's example here, and, and through his example, we see this normative pattern of the Christian Walk Now, like I said just a moment ago, we're, we're going to spend a couple of weeks, Lord willing, on this passage. And I may bring in next week a little bit more of Mark chapter 8, especially as we, we're going to consider more of Peter's step back next week. But I want to consider his confession first this morning, because the confession of Peter is what our journey in Mark has been building toward. And as we consider this confession Together, I want you to remember with me this morning the necessity of confessing Jesus as the Christ. I want us to remember the necessity of confessing Jesus as the Christ. If you remember last week, we, we zoomed out a little bit as we considered the first um, 26 or so verses of, of Mark chapter 8, and we especially considered them in the context of Mark chapter 6 and, and Mark uh, chapter 7, right? We, and, and in that, we saw the repetitious nature of the ministry of Jesus, and we saw as well the nature of, of spiritual growth, how, it, how it's a process. And again, we see that in our text too this morning. But as we've noticed in Mark, it's taken a while for the apostles to gain spiritual discernment, right? And these apostles, they've been with Jesus for a little while. They've been with him many months to a, a, a year of, of close contact, perhaps. And they've even, as we've seen, they've gone on a sort of um, a, a mini commission, we saw that in Mark 6, yet there's still been this consistent hard-heartedness, this lack of, of, of seeing and perceiving, this lack of, of hearing and understanding. But our text this morning is a turning point in their lives. It's a turning point in their ministry. Right? It opens with Jesus and the the apostles walking on a, a road into the towns of the region surrounding Caesarea Philippi, right? And, and I think this particular region is, is significant as it relates to the context of, of Peter's confession. It was a place dominated by uh, close Roman associations, which means it was a place that Caesar was confessed as, as, as Lord, right? Um, so the, the fact that this confession of, uh, of Christ would happen here, it's not a coincidence, and we'll, Lord willing, talk a little bit more about that next week. But, but in that region, traveling th through, through that region, Jesus asks his disciples, 
particularly the apostles here, he asks them a question. He says, who do men say that I am? Who do men say that I am? And, And Jesus asks this question on the heels of them being around the multitudes for some time now. And no doubt people would have had conclusions as it related to who they thought Jesus to be. Now, the answer that the disciples gives, it's interesting. And if, if you are, are tracking along with the context, this answer should be somewhat familiar to you, right? It's the answer that we saw folks giving to Herod Antipas when he was kind of frantically trying to make sense of the identity of Jesus, right? He was thinking that, you know, he had this guilty conscience because he had just had John the Baptist beheaded and, and, and he was thinking that maybe Jesus was John the Baptist reincarnated, right? And there were people around him that, that were maybe consoling him, but had their own opinions, their own conclusions about who they believed Jesus to be. But the disciples, in similar fashion, right, after brushing shoulders with various multitudes for some time now, they answer the question Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? Verse 28, some say John the Baptist, right? but some say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. Right, so that's what <clears throat> that's what people are saying. Right, those, those are the the rumors or the the speculations that are floating out there regarding Jesus. And these are all, by the way, high opinions of Jesus as far as they go. They're high opinions of him. Right, and, and the fact that these multitudes were coming out to Jesus, it, it evidences for us that people were drawn to him. They wanted to be around him, and they even revered him in some ways. But the answers, as it relates to the identity of Jesus, they, they're wrong answers, right? They're wrong answers. And these wrong answers <clears throat> have eternal ramifications, And just as these answers that we see in our text this morning, just as they were wrong answers, they were wrong conclusions about Jesus in his first advent, right? So there's wrong conclusions about Jesus that abound today, right? For instance, we know of false religions like Jehovah's Witness or Mormonism, the Church of Latter-day Saints, right? These false religions, they, they esteem Jesus but they speak about Jesus as being a, a created being, right? In their view, he's not the eternal God. In other words, they reject the doctrine of the Trinity. Right? You have a, a false religion like Islam that esteems Jesus as a prophet, not, not unlike many that were in the multitude here and the rumors we see surrounding, but that's it. Now, these aren't the only things that these false religions are in error about, but this is an example of wrong conclusions about Jesus. And again, these wrong conclusions about Christ have dire consequences. It's a matter of life or death. But it isn't just false religions that have wrong and deadly conclusions about who Jesus is. We also have people in our lives, don't we? Right, Close to home, unbelieving neighbors, unbelieving friends, unbelieving co-workers, unbelieving family, maybe they live in your home. 
right, that have wrong or apathetic conclusions about Jesus. Maybe they're not very interested and they don't give it, you know, they don't give it much thought. Or maybe they, they too have an esteemed view of him, but it's a wrong view of him. But maybe there's some of you sitting in the pews this morning that have a wrong view of Jesus, both his person and his work. If you're a, a member here at Deer Park, then on Thursdays you receive an email from me to, to help you prep for the coming Sunday sermon. And, and this week I sent out a, a Ligonier, and, and Ligonier is the organization that puts out these uh, table talk devotionals. But I, I, I sent you a, a survey that Ligonier partnered with, with Lifeway and conducted. Uh, they do it every uh, two years. It's called State of, State of Theology, um, and they conduct this every two years. And this was in um, 2022, but it was a survey of um, <coughs> 300 and, or 3,011 people. And among um, m- many disturbing trends that you can read about in that survey, it demonstrated that that 43% of so-called evangelicals surveyed in the, in the U.S. believe that Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. That's 43% of self-professed evangelicals. Right? If that survey is indicative of evangelicalism at large, then we have lots of evangelism to do with people that claim to be Christians, don't we? Right, so this isn't just a problem that we see in, in, in false religions. It isn't a problem we find only with our unbelieving friends and family. This is an issue with people who profess to follow Jesus, which tells me that a significant number of evangelicals are unconverted. They're unconverted. Right? The multitude followed Jesus for various reasons, but it doesn't mean that the mass of following was composed of converts, right? It does not mean that their hearts had been regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, but when it comes down to it, it's more about the ethics of Scripture, right? You, you, you esteem Jesus and maybe even Scripture as good moral instruction, I once knew a man who, um, he sent his family to church every Sunday, very faithful in coming to church, Uh, and I became close friends with his son, and the more I got to know the family, I learned that the father uh, was an atheist, but he sent his family to church because he believed the church would teach his kids how to be ethical, And, and maybe you're here this morning. Right? And you come because of the ethics that you see in the Bible. Right? Maybe you don't like what you see in society, especially over these last few years, and, and the church and the teachings of the church contrasts that, and you like that. Right? It's a breath of fresh air to you. Right? Maybe you come because a, a friend has invited you, or your spouse or a family member wants you to be here. Right? Maybe you're a kid and your parents love you enough not to give you a choice in the matter. Right. <clears throat> Regardless of the reason that you come, I want you to know, you know the elders are happy you're here. We're so happy that you, you're here and I pray you feel welcomed. But I want you to know something. Right? Being a Christian isn't about being a moral person. 
Right? Being a Christian isn't about extrapolating the ethics from the Bible. Being a Christian is, isn't even about opposing immoral worldviews primarily. Right? While those are good things, and while I believe the biblical worldview is stabilizing to our society that's lost its mind, right? that isn't fundamentally what Christianity or being a Christian is about. It's just not. Right? And I want us to dig into that more because we, we see that come into greater focus through the second question that Jesus asks as he's leading and instructing his disciples. And we see it in the answer that Peter gives. Right? First, consider the nature of the second question. Right? He, Jesus makes that second question personal. <laughs> and not personal in that the identity of Jesus is subjective, because it's not. Right? Meaning, we, we can't just decide for ourselves who we want Jesus to be. Right? We don't create Jesus in our own image. That's not how that works, no. Right? The answer that Peter gives, it doesn't change or alter Jesus, his person, his work. It doesn't alter him in any way. Right? Our answer, our confession of Jesus, it doesn't have any bearing as it relates to who he is. Rather, the reason... Jesus makes the, pers- the question personal is because the confession of who Jesus is, his, his fixed identity, it must become our confession if we're to be saved from the wrath of God for our personal sins. And we see in the answer to Jesus' personal question, question, the distinguishing characteristic of someone who's following Jesus in this vague moralistic but equally damning way and an actual disciple of Jesus. Right? So the question, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Right? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, right? He answers on behalf of the, the disciples here. He says, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. Right? Matthew gives us more detail to this particular confession. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, we see that, that Peter's answer is this. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Matthew also gives us insight into how Jesus initially responded to Peter's confession. Right? Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has. This is, this is the confession of the Christian. And this is the confession that the gospel of Mark has been moving us toward. Right? Mark, consider this for a moment. Mark places this confession of Peter right at the center of the gospel. 16 chapters in the gospel of Mark. He places it right at the center. Peter's confession right at the center. Now, the only other place we've seen such a clear confession in the gospel of Mark is at the beginning of Mark's gospel, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. From there, Mark's narrative, as we've seen, is, is action-focused primarily, testifying to the fact that Jesus is truly man and is truly God. But here, at the center of this gospel, is the second confession, Jesus as the Christ coming 
from Peter. Jesus is the Christ. Not, not, not a moral teacher only, but he is the Christ. And this confession, by the way, is evidence of, of spiritual progress. Right? It's a confession not just based on the evidence of what the disciples have observed. Otherwise, this confession would have come a lot earlier. Rather, the confession is evidence of the grace of God in their lives. Again, Matthew's account says that it's the Father, not flesh and blood, that has revealed what led to Peter's confession. Right? This confession had to be spiritually discerned. And it demonstrates to us that the Lord alone is the one who gives spiritual ears. The Lord alone is the one who gives spiritual sight. The Lord alone is the one who gives voice. And we see that voice is given through the confession of Peter, loosening his tongue, setting his tongue free to proclaim what's true about Jesus. He's the Christ. He's the Christ. And kids, when we hear that word, Christ. It isn't Jesus's last name. Instead, we need to think of Christ as a title. It's a, it's a title. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, right? And it means anointed one, anointed one. In other words, Jesus is the one that God promised in the Old Testament that would come and save his people. And by confessing Jesus as the anointed one, which again is the confession of the church, but by confessing Jesus as the anointed one, we see and we're confessing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophet, priest, and kingly offices that we see in the Old Testament, all of which are associated with the anointing of oil. Hence Messiah meaning anointed one. Now, <coughs> why does Jesus as prophet, priest, and king matter? In other words, why is him being the anointed one, the Messiah, matter? And I, I, I love the way that our confession puts it, the London Baptist Confession of Faith. It helps give voice to the significance of Jesus as Messiah and thus as the one who fulfills the prophet, priest, and kingly roles. And it's one of the reasons why we've spent so much time getting familiar with the language in chapter 8. Now, for time's sake, I'm only going to read it, but look at it with me. I think we, we, we may have it up here on the screen, but if not, it, it's, there's a confession in front of you. And pay attention to the answer our confession gives to each office that Christ fulfilled, okay? The office of, of, of prophet, priest, and king. And so listen to this. It says, the office of mediator between God and man is proper only to Christ, who is the prophet, priest, and king of the church of God, and may not be either in whole or any part thereof transferred from him to any other, right? That's paragraph nine of chapter eight. Then paragraph 10 says this, this number and order of offices is necessary for in respect of our ignorance, we stand in need of his prophetical office. It's the first thing. In respect of our alienation from God, which is all of us apart from his intervening work, right? but in respect of our alienation from God and imperfection of the best of our services, we need his priestly office to reconcile us and present us acceptable unto God. 
And in respect to our averseness and our utter inability to return to God and for our rescue and security from our spiritual adversaries, we need his kingly office. Why? And the answer is this, to convince, subdue, draw, uphold, deliver, and preserve us to his heavenly kingdom. Isn't that glorious news? It's glorious. Right? And in our consideration of this title, Christ, right? that the, the Christian faith isn't one where we learn how to be moral from moral teacher, right? We see that it's so we consider it more, so we think about it more, that the message of the gospel isn't God helps those who help themselves. It isn't one which we're seeking to advance some political ideology. Rather, now the Christian faith is one in which the church acknowledges the unchangeable truth as revealed in Scripture that Jesus, who is the Christ, right? Jesus, who is the, the Son of the, of the living God, is, is truly God who, who, who condescended to us and became a man, truly man, so that we might be reconciled to God. He did everything required for our salvation as prophet and priest and king. Right? He's our savior. He died for our sins. He bodily and eternally resurrected for our justification. And there's no way for any man, no matter how sincere, right? no matter how moral by worldly standards, no person can have peace with God except through Christ. Right? Our sins have earned us death. And even those who we consider to be moral people this side of eternity, they're not without sin. And this sin earned us not just a, a physical death, but a spiritual death, which is an everlasting punishment in hell. No person is unscathed by sin. No one stands justified before our triune God by their own works. You're either justified by the person and work of Jesus Christ or you're condemned based on your own biography. But even our good works are polluted or mingled with sin, according to Scripture. Isaiah chapter 64, verses 5 to 9. So we, along with the church for 2,000 plus years, we confess that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Christ. The Nicene Creed, and Josh, do we, have the, do we have that part of the Nicene Creed? The Nicene Creed is, <coughs> is one of the creeds we, re we require subscription to to be a member at Deer Park Fellowship. It, it, was, uh, it was composed by a council in the 300s in, in an effort to, to summarize the scriptures teaching on our triune God. And, and, and here is what, and we'll put it up on the screen here in just a second, but here's what the, the section on Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, says. And, and, and how about we do this? How about we say it together? We'll, we'll confess this together. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, who was begotten of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. 
who for us human beings and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. Amen. Now, kids, I know that you don't know what all that means. And let me let you in on a secret. The adults don't know what all of that means either. Right? For instance... Right? It's impossible for us to grasp with our finite reason that Jesus is the same essence as the Father. Right, Thinking through the doctrine of the Trinity that there's one God who eternally exists in three co-equal persons. Right? Father, Son, and Spirit. That we, we can't wrap our minds around that. It's impossible for us to grasp even what the phrase before all ages really means again because we have a beginning we were created yet to say those words by faith to say those words is to enter into this christian consensus about jesus the christ right it's to say amen to Peter's confession. It's to say amen to Jesus's self-revelation that was affirmed by the Father and the Spirit and testified about according to the apostles the eye and the eyewitnesses. And it's the only confession that builds the church. It's the only confession that builds the church. We'll talk about that more next week. Right, but we're so discontent. <clears throat> and again, you see this in the breaking of the second commandment, which we talked about earlier, but we're so discontent with God's method for building his church. We're so discontent with God's method of expanding his kingdom. And we adopt worldly mindsets and invest in pragmatic and, and kind of quick fix, but short-term ways to address the things that we see in our society that we don't like. Yet, in reality, when we do that, we're obscuring the confession that Jesus is the Christ. Right? Jesus is Christ in this confession that's built God's church for thousands of years. It's one in which the very gates of hell will not prevail. Right? Again, Matthew's account gives that to us after Peter confesses. Jesus says, I say to you that you're Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Right? It has this imagery of Christians storming the gates of hell. Not in our own strength, but storming the gates of hell, chanting, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. And as we do that, we rest in the sovereign power of God to accomplish his will. Quote, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this confession. We thank you 
for the clarity of your word, God. And Lord, we pray that you would help us by faith, Lord, to rest in confessing Jesus as the Christ, as the anointed one, as the one who came and did everything required to make us right, to set things right, to redeem the actions of the first Adam, and to pay the penalty that our sins, our personal transgressions of your law deserve. Thank you, Lord. And God, I pray for the one who may <coughs> be sitting here this morning that is not confessing that, Lord. I pray that your spirit would regenerate their heart that would lead to repentance of sin and faith in Jesus alone for salvation. I pray that. God, I pray for those within our sphere of influence, Lord, family members, friends, co-workers that don't know you. Lord, I pray that your spirit would do a work in them and that you would give us the courage and the love that we should have for others to promote Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord. And we thank you for the firm foundation that we stand on by grace through faith. And we love you in Christ's name. Amen.